everyone. Thanks for listening. I'm Katherine Druckman. And today we have Doc Searles, as usual. And we also have Petros Katupis. And we have Chris Davis, who has created a kit for building the retro computer, really. Um, one of the most significant uh, devices, probably, in the history of, of personal computing. I don't, I don't think I'm overstating that, am I? The Altair 8800? No. This computer, while it wasn't actually the first, it sparked everybody's imagination. I, I, it was the first time I know in my life and a lot of other guys' lives where they said, this is a computer I could potentially have in my home, which prior to that was just a, a dream. It was part of science fiction. Yeah, it completely changed the world. It, incidentally, it came out uh, right around the same time I did. So, <laughs> we have a similar release date. Um, I probably shouldn't even say that. I may edit that out. because I don't <laughs> No, no, I don't. That's am, great. But, you know, yeah. uh, so, uh, so we came out about the same time. <laughs> so that's cool. <laughs> Oh, sorry. Please go on. Don't let that distract you. You know, I was only nine years old when the Altair came out, but even at that time, I was, uh, you know, a budding nerd geek, and I liked to read magazines. Now, I was, you know, nowhere near where I could afford the, you know, what I think it was $439 entry fee to buy the kit, and, and of course, as a nine-year-old, there was no way I could build it, but it, I just remember it just firing off my imagination that, you know, now this wasn't something that was just in a sci-fi space movie. This was something that I could potentially get someday. And now the, the heyday of the Altair came and went quick, like a lot of things did back then in the computer world. Uh, but a few years later, I was able to, to buy my own uh, Timex Sinclair kit and build that computer, which fortunately was a lot simpler than building an Altair from what I've heard. Ah, okay. Sadly, I... I wasn't that cool back then, so I couldn't tell you. Well, I, I, I hate to say that I was already out of college at that point. Wow. <laughs> so, so the kits that I built were, were you know, the ham radio ones and the home electronics ones, the, the Dynaco home um, uh, preamps and power amps. And um, uh, there was a company called Lafayette Electronics back in, in, in Boston and New York, and I used to go buy their kits and put them together. Lots of soldering irons and stuff, but I was ahead of my time with that. Um, it, it is important. I, mean, I think with the Altair, I mean, the point you were making, Chris, is just so important that um, we saw for the first time that computing, computing could be personal, and it hasn't stopped being personal since. It basically, it opened Pandora's box in a really positive way. That's probably not the right metaphor, but it was like that. It was a genie released from a bottle, and that was, you know, the, the first the first fumes of the genie escaping the bottle were that Altair, really. You know, as I look back on the history of uh, the Altair and the Apple computer, I really think that in 1975, we were at this confluence of technologies where someone was going to come out with a computer that was affordable enough for an individual. You know, if it wasn't um, Ed Roberts at MITS with Altair, it, it would have been Steve Wozniak with his Apple One, or it would have been a Commodore. Jack Trammell, I think, was from Commodore. Jack Trammell, yeah. Somebody would have done it first. Uh, and, and like I said, this Altair was not the first uh, personal computer, but it definitely was one that was capable enough to make people realize they could do more uh, than just look at the blinking lights, which honestly... 
are the coolest thing about it. But yeah. you, it, it's a surprisingly capable computer. Even when I look at it today, I think, you know, these guys did this in 1975 and basically had a hit on their first try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and and not just a hit. They they got uh, Bill Gates to drop out of Harvard <laughs> and move to Albuquerque and start Microsoft. And Actually, um, I, uh, I mean, it, that that's that was a a matter of great significance, you know. And and uh, and you're right about Jobs and Wozniak as well. I mean, there was there was something in the water at that time. I think I mean people realized with with ICs especially as long as you had CPUs that were affordable. And you could create peripherals and you could create, um, you know, a bus and you could put stuff in the bus. You could create a backplane and stick things in there. Um, and then after that, it was just to get out of the way. So, so tell us about, um, I mean, you're, you're being, you know, very retro going back to this, but you've got, you've tapped into something with people because you actually have a popular product. So you know, tell us a little bit of how, how you made that happen. Well, I have to give credit to David Hansel, who was the one who actually wrote the software that runs on the Arduino uh, microcontroller that's at the heart of this kit. And David published an article on uh, hackster.io uh, that talked about his code, talked about a way it could be used, and... I always wanted an Altair, but you know, you look on eBay and they're $3,000 on up. Uh, it's just, you know, it's not something that I was going to put that much money into. And there were a couple of other Altair clones out there, but even those were a little bit out of my reach. You know, they, I think they started at 600 and went up. Um, but I wanted something that literally <laughs> had flashing lights that sat on my desk that my coworkers could see. Um, and so I, design the circuit board for this. I always, you know, I, I know we can do wire wrap and point to point wiring and a, you know, uh, but I, I really wanted a circuit board and you can get circuit boards cheap enough, but you have to order um, usually a minimum order of five. So I ordered five, designed the circuit board, ordered five of them, built it, you know, had a working unit and I posted online, hey, anybody else want these other circuit boards I have? Well, a lot of guys did. And in fact, when guys found out that I had designed a circuit board, they wanted me to, you know, sell them everything because, you know, sourcing the parts is difficult. You know, it's hard to buy one resistor or, you know, 30 LEDs. Well, you could probably do the 30 LEDs, but it's, you know, sourcing all the parts gets to be a little over the top. So they just said, hey, as long as you're sourcing these parts, source a few extras and send me one. And honestly, I thought I'd be lucky if I sold 25 of them. But uh, it's actually, I I did not know that there would be such a market for retro computers. And I've since found out there's vintage computer festivals. I've been to several of them all across the country. In fact, they happen all around the world. I've only been to them in, in the United States though. Okay, that, that's cool. I feel like we need, to, we need to hear more about, what is that like? I've never been to, the, to an event like that. Well, uh, I just went to one in Mountain View, California just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it's at the uh, Computer History Museum, which is an awesome, awesome museum in California. And uh, it's just guys that reserve a table to show what they work on. Um, they do have a little bit of a flea market in back, but the whole goal of the Vintage Computer Festival is not to sell things. It's to show things off. Um, and there were probably, I'm just going to guess here, 50-some tables. Uh, wow. my, my table was my recreations of vintage computers. Other tables would have been uh, maybe the history of uh, media, you know, CDs, floppy disks. Uh, another one was a, um, a team had done a recreation of an IBM 1620 
which was a computer from the early 60s. And that was fantastic. And there's a lot of guys that maybe specialize in European computers, and they had some of those there. And it's, it's just a lot of fun to, uh, I don't know, just see what other people are interested in, what they focus on. This year, they had a, a big display of Apple One computers. Um, and they had, I think, about seven or eight of them there. And now, an Apple One computer now is very valuable tens of thousands of dollars if you can ever find one up for auction. Uh, and they also had a, a panel of uh, people that were involved in the Apple One production. Um, I wish I could remember their names, but I remember their faces. But talking about working with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak back in 1976, putting these things together, driving them over to computer stores. It was just fascinating to hear from that. And I would say they had a, more than a few thousand people through the doors. It's a lot uh, of fun. Chris, I, I, this uh, event that you're talking about, I vaguely recall seeing a picture of you standing in front of, or behind a table with, uh, with the Altairs spread out. Is this the event that you're speaking about? Yeah, that picture you saw there was uh, me at the Vintage Computer Festival in Atlanta. That was last year. Okay. Yeah, and they have them. I know there's one in, in uh, London, there's one in Switzerland, I believe. There's one coming up in just a few weeks in Chicago. Uh, they have one in the Pacific Northwest in Seattle. Uh, so they're all over the country. Very interesting. And for our listeners, the, uh, the website that I'm referring to is addwaterandstir.com. <laughs> yes. I was going to say, let's, let's, get the, let's get that promo in there. But yeah, it's exactly. AD water. It's not ADD water. So, yeah. yeah. I wanted to uh, <clears throat> quickly speak about... Uh, the reason why I stumbled on this uh, project. Oh yes, please. And, uh, and interviewed uh, Chris. Uh, uh, it was a couple months ago. Anyway, I had just finished reading uh, Paul Allen's autobiography, and a good chunk of his autobiography was spent talking about the early days of when both him and Bill uh, Gates decided to start Microsoft. But before they started Microsoft, they had to figure out what the heck they wanted to do. And it wasn't until uh, Paul Allen saw the advertisement for the Altair that he brought it to Bill's attention and they decided to, you know, build a product around it. And it was this exact event or this exact, you know, situation that obviously inspired Microsoft or, or, or would eventually lead to Microsoft. But it was also this story that got me thinking, you know, what can I find about the Altair? I'm a, I'm a history buff myself. I love history, I love history and technology, and when I started doing my research on the Altair online, I found this project, I reached out to Chris, um, if I remember, he said he was out of stock at the time on, on, on the supplies, so I asked him to reach out to me once uh, he had more uh, in stock. As soon as he did, I bought one, and even though I just finished moving from my old house to my new house. Now that we're settled, probably this weekend or the next, I look forward to sitting down and assembling this myself. So, well, that brings up an interest. Chris, do you, do you have any other, do you um, sell any other kits? Is, or is this, is this the only one? And well, after I had made the, uh, the Altair kit, I, yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to come up with something else and it, it had to be, it had to be historic. It had to have a historic significance. It had to have blinking lights, of course. Uh, 
and but more than anything, I wanted it to have a great history. Well, I had known for some time about the Kenback One. Uh, the Kenback One is a computer that was made in 1975. Or no, 1971, I'm sorry, 1971, um, by John Blankenbacker, uh, who was from out east. And he's, st he's still around. Um, and it was a computer that basically had eight LEDs and eight switches, and you could program 256 bytes of memory. Uh, it had some rudimentary instructions where all you could really do is just make the lights blink in a certain sequence. But what he wanted to sell it for was uh, for schools to use as an introduction to here's how computers work. Um, he has admitted that he did not consider the hobbyist market, which is who the Altair targeted. Um, and he only sold about 50 of the units. Um, and I think I read that as of today, only 17 are known to exist. And if one of them ever is up for auction, I saw one on eBay uh, just a couple months ago, it went for $35,000. Uh, and so I have made a recreation of the Kenback One, which you know uses virtually none of the same circuitry, but uses an Atmel processor in there to emulate the functionality of the Kenback One. And, uh, you know, mine is, um, you know, probably about a third the size of the original. Uh, I'm actually looking into making a, a full-size replica. Uh, I actually talked to the company that made that enclosure back in the, in the 70s. And I asked them if they still have that enclosure available. Uh, they didn't, but they were extremely helpful. And they actually gave me the engineering drawings of that enclosure and said, go ahead and make one, you know, just send us a picture. We'd love to see it. And I told them about the part in history that their case plays. And the woman I had been talking to, she had been working for the company since 1985, was familiar with the case, had no clue that it had been used for such a historic product. And it was really um, grateful to hear about that. She said, you know, usually we don't hear about what our product is used for. They just make a case that they assume is used for test equipment. Uh, and I've also, uh, so that that's available on my website. I'm also working on a few other kits. I'm working on a recreation of the Apple One. And I know there are several other Apple One kits available out there, but honestly, most of the stuff I work on for myself. I mean, I wanted to understand more about the Apple One, how Steve Wozniak designed it. And uh, it's, you know, it, it's a fun experience for me. So I'm working on that. I've also built a Cosmac Elf, which um, I believe either predates the Altair, I think it does by a few months, but it was a less useful computer. Um, and I've, I've built a couple of those. Um, still unsure if I'm going to make that a, a, a kit that's available because it's, it might end up being a little spendy for what it actually is. <laughs> so, so, so I have, I have a question. Um, uh, if I, if I, looking at Petros's um, interview with you, mm -hmm. you have ten kids and you homeschool them. Eleven kids. Eleven kids. So yes. I lost count. Um, <laughs> so you, you probably lose count one time, yes. time too. <laughs> and I'm wondering to what to what degree they're involved in your work or not involved in your work, or because you, it's your work, it's not their work, or whatever. You know, they have been involved more than they are right now. Um, our youngest, we only have four kids still at home. The rest are grown and moved out. Um, and our youngest is 13. So the younger kids at home are uh, 13, 15, 
16 and 18. And when they were just a few years younger, they were more involved because they didn't have any other source of money. So I would, <laughs> I would pay them to help me package up the resistors, package up the transistors. I even was paying my, uh, my son, uh, who was 12 at the time, to build some of these kits because some guys wanted, uh, they didn't want to build their own kits. They wanted one that's pre-built. So uh, I paid them to do that. Well, now that, you know, uh, they're old enough, we, my wife runs a coffee shop. We own a coffee shop. Now that they're old enough to work at the coffee shop, they, <laughs> they get, they get a little bigger paycheck. So they're not so interested <laughs> in helping out dad for 10 bucks here and there. Uh, so now I'm back to mostly doing it myself, but uh Boy, they know how to they know how to solder. They know how to build these kits. Um, you know, uh, some of them enjoy it more than others. You know, it's a, I mean, you can't force someone to have a hobby. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, I do make sure my kids learn how to solder and and learn what a resistor is and learn how a transistor works. Uh, that's that's just part of their schooling. Oh, that is all. That is awesome. That is great. I'm just. Um... You know, I have, I have two young ones, and I'm just trying to figure out a way to get them interested in this stuff. So far, I'm unsuccessful. <laughs> I know. Like I said, you can't force someone to have your hobby. Uh, I still have my books, um, Getting Started in Electronics, uh, Forrest Mims Third, that book they sold at Radio Shack. When I was... 13 i poured over that book multiple times i still have that book i got it out for my my kids i said hey look at this book and they kind of looked and rolled their eyes and went uh, okay what's that you know they they didn't take to it like like i did but uh you know i didn't take to one of my sons uh was very uh into uh taekwondo uh has a second degree black belt he couldn't get me interested other than supporting him in Taekwondo. He couldn't get me interested in doing it myself. So like I said, you can't force a hobby onto somebody. I, I wonder not to steal uh, Doc's metaphors, but <laughs> I wonder if getting um, interested in electronics for kids today is like getting uh, excited about lumber. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's ubiquitous, you know, electronics are everywhere. It's not it, for, for, People who grew up when computing was new and exciting, I think it maybe it was very different. Every you know, every kid, well, a lot of kids have a com computers in their hands. They think nothing of it. It's just you know, it's part of the deal. Exactly. So, so uh, I'm wondering how. I mean, this could be actually turned into a, a large-ish business. Um, is that is that an ambition of yours, Chris? I mean, you you've had more success than you expected. And actually you're getting energy from it. And, you know, so I'm just wondering if it's, what's the outer dimensions of your ambitions here? You know, I have intentionally kept this on a hobbyist level um, because I really want to enjoy it. I, I don't ever want to get to the point where I have to drag myself out of bed to go down in my shop and work on an electronic design. I want to, be excited about it. I want to enjoy it. Um, I actually, the, the kind of the, the uh, balance I've struck right now, I find it very relaxing. Um, you know, I'll probably spend no more than, I'm going to say 10 to 15 hours a week in my shop. I want to make sure that there's time for family, that there's time for my wife. Um, and I want to make sure that when I'm in my shop, I'm actually enjoying it. Um, so that's where I'm at right now. And um, you know, when I, when I first had some success in this two years ago, I started looking at, 
you know, warehouse space and, you know, space that I could use outside my home for this. And that's kind of when I realized, you know, if I got this warehouse space, then I have to make sure that, oh, okay, the first 20 kits I sell every month are just doing nothing but paying for the warehouse space, you know, and I didn't want that. I didn't want it to become a chore. So yeah, I've intentionally kept it at the hobbyist level and I, I hope to always have it there. Uh, that's my goal anyway. Hey, uh, Chris, I, um, one thing that uh, I want the, uh, the listeners to, to, to know and, and maybe you can provide some uh, more detail to this, is how expandable the existing uh, units such as the Altair are. You know, if I wanted to recreate, you know, the, uh, this Altair environment and connect, you know, devices, you know, like teletype devices and things like that, you know, how far can I go to recreate that original experience? Well, one thing that I like to point out is that you have to be, um, you have to be ready to be a hobbyist and a do-it-yourselfer. Because when you get into this old technology from the '70s, standards existed, but they weren't always followed so closely. And that's what I found. I I got a, uh, it's called a, a TI Silent 700. Basically, it's a thermal uh, teletype. And it's probably, you know, you can still get them on eBay for a hundred bucks. So it's probably about the cheapest physical teletype you're going to find. Um, but even TI with, with Texas Instruments within their own company weren't even following their own standards because you'll get a version of the Silent 700 where the, uh, the, the serial port is totally different than the next model. Um, I, I worked for quite a while to get um, the TI Silent 700 hardwired to my um, Altair Duino using the serial port. And I finally got it to work kind of. Uh, I, I found out that the Silent 700 uh, inverted the logic that was coming out of the serial port. So I had to install an Arduino between there to basically reverse that logic. Um, but even that had a few problems. So what I ended up doing was uh, hooking it. There's an acoustic coupler. So I got an old telephone. I got an old 2400 baud modem and I got a telephone line simulator. And now I just hook it up through that modem at 300 baud. Uh, and that works flawlessly because that's the way it was designed to, to connect. So, you know, you got to be ready to flex your hobbyist muscles when you try to add things. But uh, my kit supports, um, well, I've, and there's guys out there using my kit that are doing far more than I ever thought it could do. Uh, we have a Google group where these guys talk about it and discuss it. Um, it supports, I've heard up to five serial ports that they've been able to get onto it. Normally it would support two serial ports. Um, so, you know, you can hook it up to teletypes. You can hook it up to modems. Guys have had it connected to uh, old timey printers like an Oki data printer. Um, and they've had them hooked up to each other uh, to communicate. Uh, and I've got, you know, I've hooked them up to, uh, to terminals. Uh, I have an old televideo terminal that I always tested on. Um, so yeah, there's a, a, there's a lot of things you can connect it to. And there's a lot of built-in emulation of a lot of the expansions, like the serial ports, the disk drives, the hard drives. That's all emulated within the device. That is awesome because, like I said, being able to recreate that original environment. I mean, I mentioned earlier, I'm 
and I love history and, and I love history and technology. And, you know, part of my looking this, you know, looking up the Altair, you know, after I had read um, Paul Allen's uh, book was to see if I can recreate that uh, environment. And in worst case, even buy that environment. But like you said, <laughs> it, it's not cheap. I remember um, on one of these retro computing groups on, uh, on, on Facebook, uh, this, they have these marketplaces. Somebody was selling a uh, later generation, like a second generation Altair um, for about three, $4,000. And I remember telling my wife at the time, if I had three or $4,000 to drop at that point, I, pro I probably would have, even though that wasn't the original, original Altair. Yeah. You know, it was kind of neat at uh, one of the vintage computer uh, festivals. Um, there was a display of old teletypes. That was uh, this group's hobby was old teletypes, refurbishing them, getting them to work. And here they had an old model 33 teletype and it's clacking away. And I see it's hooked up to my Altair simulator. And I talked to the guy and he said, well, you know, it was either hook it up to that, which is, you know, fairly cheap and affordable or <laughs> drop 3000 bucks on an Altair online and hope it works. Um, and then also uh, a group had made a, basically they, they've made a kit, which is really kind of fun. It's a kit that will convert a, um, an IBM Daisy wheel typewriter into a terminal. Uh, and they had that hooked up to my Altair simulator that they were using it to drive that. Uh, it's really neat to see uh, to see that guys are getting this stuff connected and making it work. And uh, it's just I don't know when I when I made it, it was honestly just to sit and blink lights on my desk. That's really all I made it for. <laughs> and the emulator is able to get you to play the same games. Yes, yeah, you could with the uh, the original, right? Oh, you want to play Colossal Cave Adventure? You can you can do that with with my Altair emulator. <laughs> you know, uh, another point, aside from the fact that uh, your kit is obviously a lot cheaper than trying to find an original, right? The other uh, advantage is uh, the weight. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah, how, much, how many pounds was the original? Like 60, 65 pounds? Yeah, it, depending on how many cards he had. But yeah, 65, 70 pounds. That thing was huge. Yeah, and mine's about two pounds. I, I imagine that included like the Transformer and some other... Just plain old heavy electronics, things like that in it. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, it, it reminds me that when I, um, many years ago, actually, I, I decided to fix up an old television. And I thought, you know, I, I remember when you could take tubes down to a tube testing thing at the hardware store. Yeah. And you could plug it in and here's a 12AX7. I'll plug the 12AX7 in here and see what it does. Oh, that's, that's on the yellow or the green. Well, I, I, I bought a bunch of new tubes for this thing. I put them in. And it caught fire <laughs> because suddenly parts were getting more electricity than they ever had. You know, coming off the plate side of the tube, you know, it went into some some capacitor that still had paper in it, right? And the, and the thing caught fire. It was really kind of sad. <laughs> but you know, you know, there's there's something about dealing with the reality of of, of to me. It, it it almost goes. You have to look at what what makes something a hobby besides just obsession? Um, and I don't want to diminish the importance of obsession because I think without, without OCD, we would not have civilization, right? You know, I mean? the yeah. first guy, who, the first guy who made a 
an arrowhead out of a rock, you know, he got into it, right? You know, there's, but with, with, we've moved up so far in, in the, the levels of electronics that we're using where, um, you know, I mean, back in the, in the 50s and 60s, I had a 6-7, I have an 8-transistor radio. It's better than your 7-transistor radio, right? Well, now, you know, all of us are using, uh, the devices we're using now probably have billions of transistors in them. Yeah. Um, there's, but, it, but everything takes place at kind of the miracle level, right? Um, my obsession as a kid was radio, and um, I grew up near New York City in New Jersey where out my bedroom window I could see the towers of the New York AM stations and and I would ride down there on my bike and and talk to the engineers there and stuff and talk radio lore with them and talk about trying to get your kid interested in this stuff when we moved back to New York I went to the local radio shack back when those things still existed to get a radio there weren't any they didn't have any radios there they had Arduinos they didn't have radios <laughs> and um and on the way back my kid who was then 15 said about radio, what is the point of range and coverage? Because to him, those were alien concepts. So he did not understand the inverse square law and how that applied to, to a radio transmission. That, you know, because to him, geez, the radio station's also on the internet. So I can just you know, get it there. Why would I ever you know, listen to a thing that where it, it fades as you leave town? And just a couple thinking out louds there are one that, there's a charm in the limitations to things, you know, to some things that, and then knowing where those come from, why is it that it does that? You know, well, you know, and even for me, it's like, why, why wasn't the TV caught fire? And I didn't anticipate that. Right. And, and, and why is it that, um, you know, you know, how does programming work? How does the circuit work? Why does, you know, um, you know, when you solder something together like that and you see the rudiments of, of, of how it works, you start, you can see the, the potentiation of it. You see what got Bill Gates excited. You see what, what got, um, uh, you know, Steve Wozniak excited. I remember it was, it's an interesting question to me about the Apple one. Um, I mean, he, to some degree, if I'm not mistaken, he made that partly out of like stolen parts that he got from, <laughs> from Hewlett Packard. <laughs> he was working at the time. Right. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, you know, there's stuff on there that fell off a truck, you might say, right? Yeah. Uh, but, there, but that's, you know, making do with what you've got is, you know, in some ways more important than the miraculous stuff that you take for granted. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, we're, you know, I, I'm looking at these things. These are things I was excited about as a young man. Um, you know, and, and you... Uh, uh, you know, a decade earlier where, uh, you know, you talk about radio and those things that excited you. I'm sure long before our time, there were guys debating the merits of AC versus DC. And that's what, that's what, you know, got them excited. Well, so, you know, what's to say in a decade from now, you know, what is it that's going to excite the young people, you know, in 10 years? Um, some, you know, I, I mean, what excites them now? Is it new apps? Is it, uh, I, I guess I really don't know. I should pay attention to what my kids are interested in. <laughs> Instead of trying to make them interested in what I'm interested in. <laughs> if you talk to my kids, it's just uh, whatever's on their iPods and Minecraft. <laughs> yes. I just love Minecraft. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but that stuff plays out. I was talking to somebody a couple of days ago at a conference who um, 
was very involved with kids in World of Warcraft, and uh, which is now almost an ancient um, game, but how much that influenced their lives later later on and what they're doing now, kids in their 20s now who were in the World of Warcraft when they were 10, 12, 11, 12 years old. Um, and a big part of it was, you know, coming off as, like, they wanted to make sure nobody knew they were 10 or 11 or 12 years old because they were busy running an army or something like that, you know. And and it, it was good for their egos. It would, and And they walk away with skills from that, right? So, you know, they're, you know, we, you know, humans are really good at learning stuff that, you know, with whatever's available to them. It'll be different in 10 years, I'm sure. Yeah. So, so speaking of humans and learning, um, could you talk a little bit about um, what's required to build your kit? Like, for example, if, if I know how to solder, can, can I do this? Knowing nothing about my technical background, assuming I'm a complete beginner at anything to do with electronics. Yeah, you know, soldering is, is a skill you would probably want to have before you tackle this kit. So uh, if, if you're listening and you want this kit, but you've never soldered, you've never done anything, you know, just look on Amazon or eBay for a, a learn soldering kit. And, you know, that'll probably teach you what you need to know. Um, after that, yeah, just as long as you follow the instructions and, you know, put the transistors in the correct orientation put the leds in the correct orientation and uh, my instruction booklet i think is fairly clear on uh you know the way the way you need to do things there's not a lot every once in a while i get a question where i you know maybe thought that something was obvious and i didn't mention it in the instructions and i realize oh okay i just assume that because I've been doing it for 30 years or whatever, and it may not have been so obvious to someone new. But I, I would call it a beginner to intermediate kit. Uh, my Kenback One kit, I think, is a, a perfect kit to uh, introduce someone to to uh, building an electronic kit. Um, so yeah, there's there's nothing about it that requires any specialized experience, uh, but just with the Altair kit, just knowing how to solder would help. Okay. I will say that uh, I have these instructions and they're very graphical, lots of pictures. And uh, it, it looks pretty obvious what you need to do. So I, I, I will say that. It's great. I, 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 a few years ago, I built, um, unsurprisingly for me, um, a Ramsey. Ramsey is a maker of kits, or FM transmitter. It was a, like a little one watt FM transmitter. And it, you know, it comes with a zillion parts and it explains up front, this will take 200 hours. <laughs> wow. and, and, and I got about 25, 30 hours into it when I brought in a friend who was actually much more adept than me to finish the damn thing off. And then, and then that still didn't work. And the guy, uh, the guy who ended up making it work, um, Catherine might be unsurprised to find this out, was Phil Hughes, who wow. started Linux Journal, um, uh, which employed us. And it took him less time to insult what I had done with the kit than it took him to fix it. <laughs> it took less, less time to fix it. It took him to insult the way that I was, I was doing it. <laughs> unsurprising yeah unsurprising well my altair kit i estimate should be five hours yeah so not <laughs> that's 200 the, that's the way it ought to be <laughs> you know shortly after i uh, made this kit available i had a guy write to me who had built an original altair kit and he built mine and you know mine if you follow the instructions 
works every time. Um, and, oh, he wrote and he told about, he said, you know, we kind of romanticize the the day of the Altair. He said, but that was a very hard kit to build. And it was a virtual guarantee when you got it built, it would not work. <laughs> you would have to diagnose what the problems were, where something was missing. He said, there were all kinds of errors in the documentation. And, you know, he said, we look back and we have fond memories of it. He said, but really, it was a very frustrating uh, uh, endeavor. Wow. Part of that, I, re I recall reading, was even quality control of the components that they would ship it with. Yeah. Not, not that things are better today. I mean, they are better today than they were, you know, three decades ago, four decades ago, but we still see the same issues coming out of yeah. today. Well, that was the Apple II and the Apple I as well, right? I mean, the Apple I was hand-built, and the Apple II was actually, you know, manufactured in mass, and and in the Apple III, I don't know if you remember hearing about this, about the Apple III, but the, the way that you would seat something in the back plane was by dropping it squarely on the floor. Yes. <laughs> you had to drop it. Yes, I do remember that. <laughs> I had an Apple III back in the late 80s, and I think I must have gotten one of the later uh, models because mine was worked absolutely flawlessly. So uh, I'm glad I didn't have to experience the uh, having to drop your computer. <laughs> it was pre-dropped at the factory. Yes, it's already been dropped. <laughs> okay, well, well, we've been doing this a while. Do we have any final wrap-up questions? So, Chris, when, uh, when do you envision you'll have a complete kit for the Apple One? <laughs> I am, I'm going to say I'm... 80% done with it. I have a functioning Apple One replica. Uh, what I need to get working is the video output. And honestly, I need to decide how I want this. You know, the original Apple One had composite video. Well, composite video is, you know, that's just that's such old technology. So do I want to, you know, have an HDMI output? Do I want to have it uh, maybe a, a VGA output. I, I don't know. One of the things I have found, though, is uh, they sell them as security monitors, but there are uh, inexpensive multi-input monitors available on Amazon um, that I've tried them with my Apple One replica, and they work very good. So I may stick with the composite output and just recommend, you know, get one of these inexpensive security monitors because they're, they're the right aspect ratio. They're, they're four to three aspect ratio. Um, so I, I just need to get that video output working and you know, I'm winter is when I get most of this kind of stuff done because you're housebound. So hopefully by spring I will have it ready. Mm. I, I anticipate there's going to be a lot of interest, not, not to, <laughs> Not to say that the Altair is, is not exciting, but, you know, Apple being what yeah. I expect there to be a lot of interest for that Apple One. And another thing I want to add to the Apple One is uh, one of the things that I think makes my Altair kit very uh, accessible and popular is the fact that it uses an SD card to store disk images. So you can right off the bat load programs. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to have a similar system for the Apple One where there's an SD card where it it basically emulates the cassette drive where you, you know, you'd normally load a program from cassette, which was the only thing that Apple one had available, but instead of loading from a cassette, it's just loading from the SD card because there's all kinds of software floating around on the internet for an Apple one. Um, so 
that'd be an easy way to, you know, allow people to actually be able to use and play with and show off their Apple One. And I also wonder if there are any working cassette drives still in existence, too. I mean, they're, I mean, that sounds like this seems to be like having had many, having tried to reactivate a lot of old tape drives of various kinds, they, they tend to fail. They're all yeah. the, the belts are gone or the little, you know, rubber wheels are yeah. not doing what they used to do. And a lot of guys now, there, there are other retro systems out there that use a, uh, uh, a type of cassette drive, but what they'll use is just uh, an iPod or an iPhone to just play back the audio. Right, yeah. Which yeah. then is converted into the digital data. So, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot of fun things you can do, but I, I want to go for that SD card where you can just easily copy files onto it and be able to run them. I think, I think that's probably the best route as well. Yeah. Anything, is there any, uh, anything else you would like our listeners to know about your projects or about even how to get into, uh, into the general field of historic computing, I guess you would say. You know, there's a huge, I, I did, when I started this two and a half years ago, I did not know that there's a huge network of people that are just fascinated with this and, and, not even just old guys. Uh, that's what surprised me at these vintage computer festivals. There's a lot of young people there. Um, in fact, uh, I ran into a, a couple of uh, young women there who are probably in their early 20s. And I asked them, I said, why are you here? And <laughs> both, of them, both of them were software developers um, and just said, we wanted to know more about this industry we're in. And how they had, in studying that industry, had just become fascinated with all of the stories behind uh, these computers. And, I mean, this is, you know, these were not, um, you know, HP was a very large company back then. This was not HP telling us what a computer should be. These were, like, individual people, you know, doing their best uh, and, and imagining this and building it and so it really is uh i mean it's total entrepreneurship it's total individual creativity that's part of the story and that's what's so attractive about it wow well that's great i mean on that note i don't know how we top that so <laughs> <laughs> i think we wrap it up this thank you great. so it's much really, really great having you on there so it's yeah. uh add add water um let's go review that one last time and stir a D W A T E R A N D STIR S T I R. Excellent, excellent. And we'll we'll put all of this in the description of the podcast to make it nice and easy. Okay, super. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Yeah, this has been fun. I've enjoyed. Unfortunately, our listeners will not benefit from watching all the lights flash right behind your head. So we can see that in the background. Yeah, I've I've been quite mesmerized by watching it. Very cool. Makes me want to build one. Uh, well, good. Well, Adwaterandstir.com. Yeah. <laughs> oh.